in a December 17th article called Truth is Not Flexible, Franklin Graham wrote, Dear friend, truth is flexible. That's the brightly lit message above a popular pedestrian bridge in the heart of Oslo, the capital city of Norway. The bridge is just blocks from the Norwegian parliament and a short stroll from the arena where I preached the gospel at an evangelistic crusade in mid-November. Norway is a beautiful, friendly, and prosperous country, but that sign is an illustration of how far Norwegian culture has drifted from its long and rich Christian heritage. Nearly nine out of ten Norwegians are members of a church, just as their parents and grandparents have been for generations. But today, not even one in ten actually goes to church. As secularism has taken root and spread, many in Norway, as in our own country, believe that truth is whatever you want it to be or what feels right to you. Yet when we take our last breath on earth, that thinking won't stand. Each of us steps into eternity in one of only two places, heaven or hell. I love Franklin Graham. And I love the clarity with which he explains the truth. In an age of pluralism where all lifestyles and all beliefs are considered to be equal, requiring people to convert from one religion or one set of beliefs to another is considered wrong. It's frowned upon. But the last time I checked, there's still a God in heaven and God still has spoken His word doesn't change through the centuries. He certainly doesn't pay any attention to polls in one country like America that is here today and will be gone tomorrow. People better think outside the current box or they'll face the consequences. Actually, conversion to Christianity is a beautiful thing. And working toward people being converted is a beautiful thing. Do you remember what Jesus said? There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over what? 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's a beautiful thing. There is joy in heaven when someone goes through a conversion. That's amazing. He also taught this. He said, a a physician is not needed for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He knew who, who he was after. He was after anyone who could tell they were a sinner. By the way, we're all sinners, so he was after all of us. You should want sinners to convert to Jesus. We should work together for the conversion of other people, and we should do it without apology. Yes, I am trying to convert you. It's a beautiful thing to be converted. You should want to be converted, and you should want someone to help you see the truth and be converted. All of us are thankful, those of us who are saved, that we had a conversion. None of us complain about that conversion. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, he who has found his life, you have all these people who are discovering their lives. He who has found his life, now here's his his advice, will lose it. It's not a good thing to find your life, he said. (laughs) He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, Jesus said, will find it. In fact, The very ones who owe the apology are those who are not working for conversion, for their 
False love will be no comfort to those who slip into eternity lost forever. So it is our honor and our joy today to begin a short study on what we're going to call biblical conversion. What does it entail? We're going to look in Acts chapter 2, if you turn there, and um, it presents a great case for understanding biblical conversion. We're going to go through the, the details here and really get a good picture of biblical conversion. If you ever wondered, what does the Bible really say about being converted? Am I sure I am a Christian? You're going to get a really good explanation here in this passage, and we'll do our best to explain it to you. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2 and read verses 37 through 41. Acts 2, 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then... Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Well, from beginning to end of this short section, you can tell it is about conversion to Jesus. That's the whole point of this paragraph. They started out dedicated Jews out in the streets of Jerusalem, listening to this sound of many different languages, praising God, trying to figure out what that sign, that miracle meant. These are the Jews that had some of them cried out for Christ's rejection, for his crucifixion, and they end up baptized believers in the name of Jesus inside the church of Christ. Conversion, mass conversion, all in one day, probably all just in one morning, it seems. I think that you can see here that conversion is a beautiful thing. If you're reading this and thinking about what those 3,000 thought it was, they would have thought it's beautiful. Don't you agree? And, and therefore, Peter, who was working to convert them, was doing a noble thing. He was not doing a bad thing. He didn't need to apologize for what he was doing. He was trying to convert them. And 3,000 of them were converted. I would exhort you, even as we get into this, don't listen to the, the foolish intelligentsia of this world. What does the media really know about truth? If you ask them, what is truth? They don't know. What is the secular education system we have here in America? Understand about the kingdom of God and how to get in it and which kingdom will win out in the end. They don't know. There's a great limit to what they know and understand. To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, this inspired text here in Acts chapter 2 is our wisdom about conversion, and we're going to pay attention to it, okay? It contains all of the necessary ingredients of conversion. It has gospel preaching. It has the conviction of sin, genuine repentance, the sign of water baptism, real forgiveness of sins, the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then added to the membership of a visible church, the church in Jerusalem. So we're going to go through these components of biblical conversion. We're going to do them in detail. We won't get them all done today. I want to do this for your instruction. I want, you to, I want you to be edified by this as you think about your impact on other people. I'm hoping also it will help your discernment as well. So component number one, that's our outline, is the components of, of biblical conversion. Component number one is gospel preaching. Look back at verse 37, if you would, and the very first part of it. What does it say? Now, when they heard this. Now, I know 
Many would want to just zip past these transition words, but it'd be very easy to do so, I know, but they really express something important. They express the power and the transforming nature of the blessed Word of God. And you know me, I don't like to go past any phrase that's pregnant with meaning, so I want to talk about this a little bit. Peter preached that entire sermon, all those verses behind that. If you missed that, you may want to kind of scan through it. We just finished studying it, all about Christ, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit on his followers. Peter preached that whole thing, and I'm sure he preached it loudly. I mean, they're outside. It was open-air preaching. He didn't preach it softly. He was bellowing it out. He had boldness. He had great conviction that it was true. There was clarity in his words. He took Old Testament Psalms and he exposited the meaning of that for these Jews. He preached from the historical fact of the resurrection kind of as the backdrop. He had the other 11 apostles behind him standing there as, as witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. He preached with logic. It's, it's chronological and it's logic in the way it works through. He preached with passion. We called it logic on fire. That's preaching. Please notice, before we get into any of the other topics of conversion, any of the other components of conversion, Peter was not up there philosophizing and just merely lecturing about things that he was emotionally detached from. He put his all into this. I mean, he preached hard from his own heart. He was speaking for Christ. He was speaking for the other 11 apostles. He was speaking for the 120 disciples. He was not up there trying to relate to the crowd. You have all these speakers today, and you could tell they're very skilled at it. They know exactly how to relate to everybody that's out there. Peter was not trying to relate. He was not moving back and forth and schmoozing them. He was preaching truth. He just presented unvarnished truth, and he trusted that God would do the work in the hearts that needed to be done. Do you want to be a good evangelist? Do you want to be a good preacher of God's Word? Would you like to see some effect, some fruit in your own life? Well, you already have a hint here how to do it. Speak directly. Don't beat around the bush. Speak boldly. Do you believe what you're saying or do you not believe what you're saying? Don't try to make people like you. We're in the age where everybody has to be liked. Everybody has to be popular. You even have to like things here and like things there, and I want to be liked. No, in this situation, it's not about people liking you. They can be saved if they don't like you. Did you know that? Did you know that they could not like you at all and still be saved? God can bring them to himself even if they don't like the way you talk. They don't like the way your illustrations were. They don't like your mannerisms. They don't like you, but they can still get saved. Peter didn't care whether he was being liked. It had nothing to do with relating to the crowd. He didn't take a course on, here's how you move in and out of the crowd and make them laugh them and tell a joke here or there, and now they'll identify with you, and then you can get them saved. None of that was there. I would say he also spoke clearly. This is an untrained fisherman, right? And he's just going to talk straight. You know how some guys are. They just tell you like it is. That's Peter. And we like that. He had forceful conviction. He said, I'm going to talk, and I'm going to let God work. Remember, the people he's talking to mostly were probably common folk also. They're not seminary graduates. They're not linguists. And they heard Peter. Peter's a common man. They're common people. He's talking right to their hearts. You can do that. These are not advanced studies kind of people. These are just normal people talking to normal people. That means that you can do this. And God chose to work through the simple, direct, clear, confident preaching of Peter. 
And I believe God will work through you if you believe it. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe that God will use you. Of course he'll use you. God will use you to reach people that he won't use anybody else to reach. You don't need to call up your elder, call up your pastor. Would you witness to so-and-so? You witness to them. You tell them. You're in their life. God puts you there. You have a mouth. Talk to them. Tell them what you know. Obviously, if you want someone to get saved, and that's the goal of conversion, right? Aren't you trying to convert them? Isn't that what you're trying to do? Isn't that what you want? You're not just going to have a conversation with them, right? You're not just going to fill time in the elevator as you're going up five floors. You're trying to do something in a conversation. What are you trying to do? You're trying to see them what? Converted. You want them converted. That's what I hope you want. But if you're going to have them converted, they have to hear, they have to hear the Word of God. Do you agree? Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The Word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Peter preached the Word of Christ. He told them all about him. He hit the highlights of Christ. Can you do that? Can you tell about the miracles of Christ? Can you tell about the death of Christ? Can you tell about the burial and resurrection and appearances and ascension of Christ? Can you tell the meaning of that? If you can, you can witness like Peter can. You can do this. Isn't it exciting to know that your personality is irrelevant? You don't have to have a personality like Peter, me, or anybody else. When it comes to evangelism and getting other people converted, God chooses to use everybody, any personality. It doesn't have to do with you. He converts people not because of you. He converts them because of his word. They hear his word and they're converted. That's why I'm taking time on the first few words here to show that your personality is irrelevant. God has chosen to convert people, to save people through an instrument, and that instrument is his own word, not you or me. The word, in other words, we say this in theology, the word is the means to grace. It's the avenue that brings grace to the heart. The word is the channel of blessing. The word is the power, not your forcefulness, not your skill. The word is the power. You might remember in uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, it records that Philip, one of the seven, he opened up his mouth in a beginning from the scripture. He preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch who then was converted immediately on the spot. What are you supposed to get from that? That Philip was just another guy. He was just a guy that spoke the word of God and God used him to convert this very important person. You could talk to someone that is, uh, is greatly esteemed in the world and you could give them the word of God and they can be converted. You don't have to have some trick. You don't have to have some skill. Just give them the word of God. In James 1.18, it says, in the exercise of God's will, God brought us forth. That's talking about regeneration, bringing us forth to light. God brought us forth by, and now it gives the instrument, by the word of truth. People are so used to hearing lies, you give them the word of truth, they can be converted. God causes the new birth by the instrument of the Bible. And the new birth, what we call regeneration, is what powers and fuels and causes instantly what we call human conversion. Again, I want to say it's not about you. It is about the Word of God. If you are thinking of an instrument, you want to cut something in your house, you don't go with your fingers like this. You go get scissors, right, and you do the cutting. If you want to, if you want to drive somewhere, you don't go there and pretend you're in a car. You go get a car and you use the instrument of the car to get somewhere. So if you want to convert somebody, what you need to look for is the instrument that converts people. And the instrument that converts people is the Bible. Memorize the verses, use the Bible, and yes, God will use you. He'll use you.
And you have to believe that. You don't always get the same results. That's not the point. Well, but 3,000 people weren't saved. Okay, 3,333 doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Just give them the Word of God. Use the mighty Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. What kind of seed is that? That is the living and enduring Word of God. It's like a seed. You plant it in a heart, you plant it in a mind, and it can cause conversion. It has all the power itself. I grow tomatoes. How do I grow tomatoes? Well, spring comes, not now. I grow tomatoes. I put a seed in the ground. I don't create tomatoes. I can't sit there and create a tomato. I put a seed in the ground, and the thing grows. Got to water it. Make sure it has soil, nice spot, little sunshine. But I put the seed in the ground. If I don't put the seed in the ground, how many tomatoes am I going to get? Zilch. Nada. Nothing burger. Nothing for the burgers either because I like the tomatoes on the burgers. I don't get anything. How many converts do we get when we say, well, God won't use me? And we don't sow any seeds. Hmm, it's right. We have to get out there and we have to sow the seeds. Otherwise, there's no crop. God wants us to do this. You remember Jesus likened the word of God to a seed, right? Different soils, some seed you scatter will land on the rocky ground. Remember that? doesn't do anything. You know, some, I'm sorry, some gets snatched away by Satan. Some falls on the rocky ground. Some gets choked out by the thorns. That's all the cares of life. But some, some seeds will fall on what? Good soil. And when it falls on good soil, now you, you, you are not there to make the soil good. You can't. You can't make the hearts of people good. You're not there to make their hearts good. You just put the seed and see if their heart is good. That's what you do. And it's exciting. When actually something grows, it's exciting to see something grow and fruit to happen. It's exciting. Get busy. You'll like it. And, of course, Satan will try to discourage you. Oh, you're trying to convert people. Oh, you're narrow-minded. Oh, you have to brush all that away. That's a satanic attack on your mind. That's spiritual warfare. We've been talking about that. Go do the good thing like Peter did. Paul had trust and confidence in the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire? Now, who could boast like that? Declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Hebrews 4, 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Speaking of the voice of the Lord, Job wrote in Job 37, 1 and 2, at this, at the word, also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. That's how God's word is. So if you want conversion, you want to do evangelism in a biblical way, the word must be prominent. Don't come up with some style, some scheme. It, it doesn't ma- in the end, it doesn't really matter what you did if you didn't give them the word. And you can't do anything wrong if you did give them the word, right? Say, I did something wrong. Did you give them the word? Then you didn't do anything wrong. Any attempt to muddy the word, be sloppy with the word, hide the word, make it more palatable because you don't like how it's written, forget that. God had the Bible written the way he wanted it written. If he wanted it offensive, it's offensive. You're not the cook. You're the waiter that just brings the food to the table. Don't mess it up. The waiter shouldn't say, you know what? I wouldn't have cooked it this way. Let's change it. No, no, you bring what the cook cooks. They order, you cook, they bring it, and you put it there. If they eat it, they eat it. If they don't eat it, they don't eat it. 
Sinners are desperately sick. They need full strength medicine. Full strength, not little bits. You say, but I tried to witness to people, but they won't listen. Fine, move on. How many people are in the world? See, I've witnessed to these six people and they never listen to me. Fine, six people, six people. Come on. There's hundreds of people that are around you, thousands if you try, tens of thousands if you use those electronic devices, right? Find a sinner to listen somewhere. Try a little harder, scatter the seed more broadly. Stretch out into new areas. Don't cast your pearls before what? Swine. See, you already know. Component number two. Component number two of conversion is conviction of sins. That's the second part of verse 37, if you look at it again. They were, so they hear the word, right? And they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter, by the way, Peter gave no invitation here. If you all would like to get saved, close your eyes. We're going to have five stanzas of just as thou art. We're going to open up the front, come flooding down. He didn't do any of that. People ask, why don't I give invitations? Peter didn't. He preached the word. And they said, they said, let's have an invitation. They're the ones who wanted to create the invitation. They were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, notice they're right there with them, brethren, what shall we do? I don't know how they said those words. I don't think I can say them with quite the way they would have said them. Of course, this is the result every evangelist wants to see. It's a delight to see hearts that are humbled, that God has humbled. They're now contrite and broken of spirit. It's like they've been hit by a mighty hammer. It's like they've been cut by a sharp sword. They were pierced to the heart. The heart, of course, is the very center of a man's being. What does the heart include? It includes your conscience. It includes your mind, your will, your emotions. The center of you, all that is you, is all the thinking, reasoning, willing person that is the inside. It's their heart that was convicted. And, and it was pierced. Katanuso is the Greek term. It's used only here in the New Testament, and it refers to the pain that you get because of a stab. Ouch. Down to the innermost part of the being, genuinely pierced. Someone else said they were cut to the heart. One scholar noted that in Homer's writings, this Greek word was used of horses stomping the ground with their hooves. In other words, it, it convicted them. It hit them hard. It cut them deeply. It hurt. Didn't I say that last time, that good preaching sometimes hurts? When you speak to people about the gospel, don't be afraid to talk to their hearts. Talk to their mind and their conscience, but also their heart. Don't just make it be an intellectual battle. Go right to their hearts. Don't avoid saying the hard things. See, again, if you're honest, sometimes you're out there witnessing and you just want people to like you. If you go out there with the understanding they're probably not going to like you, you'll be a better evangelist because you won't worry about it. Get your friends in here or from other Christian churches. Get some good friendships so they can console you when you get yelled at. And when you go out there just like, they're probably not going to like me. And then you'll do better. And that's what I do. I gave up on people liking me a long time ago. I mean, why? Why? They're not the kind of friend I necessarily want to have if they're going to reject Christ anyways, right? 
I care about them. I want to serve them, love them. I want to help them. I would do things for them, but they're not really going to be a confidant, someone that I can be close to. I just want to see them. I don't, I don't care if, if they go away hating me. If somewhere down the road they forgot my name and they get saved, wasn't it worth it? Wasn't it worth it? I didn't hear an amen on that. Wasn't it worth it? I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to be not liked. You can be gentle. You don't need to be obnoxious. You could be gentle. Just be firm. Look them in the eye with tenderness and determination and tell them you're lost. By the way, that's how I got saved. The guy that witnessed to me said, Tom, there's only two families. There's a family of God and the family of Satan. You belong to one of those two. And I knew which one I belonged to. Imagine going up to someone saying, you know, you probably belong to the family of Satan. <laughs> it's pretty much what he told me. And the Lord used that. I, I just knew it was true. I mean, I knew I wasn't part of the family of God. The way I was living, it's pretty obvious. So tell me the truth. Care about them, but don't spare the punch. How is the Holy Spirit going to convict them if you're trying to soften everything? Let's schmooze it over. Let's not use our Bibles too much. Let's let them know they can sneak in. What, the, there's a back door to heaven? We'll sneak in the back door. There's no back door to heaven. By the way, if you're not going to speak the full truth, it'd be better for you to stay quiet. Don't make the straight ways of the Lord crooked. Now, notice the positive response. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now, from whence comes that question? And the answer is it comes from deep within. Deep within them, they realized we killed our long-awaited Messiah, the one that our ancestors told us to wait for, the one they'd been praying for for generations, dear great-great-great-great-great-grandmother whatever. And she passed this down and told us it would be a wonderful day when the Messiah came. He came, and we killed him. We didn't just kill him. We crucified him. We cried out for his crucifixion. We didn't just do that to the Holy One of Israel. We turned him over to the Gentile dogs to have him crucified. Cried for executing the Holy One, the Blessed One. Can you think of any sin in the entire universe that is worse than that sin? By the way, if you're thinking you've committed too great of a sin to be forgiven by God, you didn't commit this sin. And God's going to forgive these people. So you remember that, okay? Imagine the level of that conviction. Can you imagine the hush that came over the crowd before those words came out? brethren, what do we do now? They're realizing, what do we do now? It's, it's not just that they killed their Messiah. It's that Peter just finished saying that God put him at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in the heavens. He can trample down any of his enemies, and they are his enemy. And they're realizing it's like, we're doomed. I mean, they just finished having breakfast. They were going to have a great day. Day of Pentecost, festivities, and now they realized we're doomed. We put them to death. John MacArthur, his little quote, he says, stunned by their inability to evade the indictment that they were guilty of heinous behavior before God, they were overcome by grief and remorse. By the way, do you see the danger in only preaching about the love of God? Do you see that? If you only preach, if you only say God loves you, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. God accepts you the way you are. That gives them a false security because they've never been led to conviction. And that's an important component of conversion. They have to have a conviction of sin. If everything is fine with them, then whatever relationship they have with Jesus is more like a life coach than it is a savior from sin. 
There are many people who have Jesus like as a life coach, but they've never been convicted of their sin. They're not really believers. They're not really converted. They've buddied up to Jesus. They're using Jesus to get rich or whatever, but that's not conversion. They're told about the love of God, but they weren't told, God hates the way you live. God hates the way you live. Wait, is it appropriate to use God and hate in the same sentence? Let me say it again. God hates the way you live. Of course he does. He's holy and we're not holy. Of course he hates the way we live. The amazing thing is he still what? Loves us. You can't even understand how great the love of God is for you until you understand how much he hates the way you talk and the way you think and your behavior and the way you've been for years and years. He hates all that and he still loves you and me. It's amazing. This is the kind of question I think that the Philippian jailer really said when he realized he'd heard Paul and Silas singing hymns. They were thrown in the prison and he heard them singing hymns and he was about to kill himself because he thought that his prisoners were gone. And he's so desperate. I mean, he's like, he's going to do the thing where he kills himself because his prisoners got away. And I guess he didn't want to suffer the consequences for that. And then they call out to him and say, well, we're still here. And the Philippian jailer runs to him and says, sirs, What must I do to be saved? That's kind of the same question here. Once you understand eternal peril, once you die and slip into eternity, there is no more help for you. I had someone tell me, they said, you know, I'll figure out whether Jesus is the Savior or not after I die. I said, it's going to be too late. It's appointed to men once to die, and after that comes not a second chance. The Bible says in Hebrews, judgment. Jesus said, To the Jews, in John 8, I believe it was, he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You'll die in the state of your sins, and God will count that as your judgment. You see, there's no chance after death. Why wait? Now, please observe that conviction of sin is essential to any gospel presentation. There is no logical need for anyone that you're going to go out and talk to to run and flee to Jesus until they see themselves as lost, until they realize they're on a pathway towards judgment. That rock song really did have truth in it. I'm on a highway to hell. And it won't be fun. Why come to Jesus if you're not a sinner? You might as well just meditate like a Buddhist. You might as well just do the five external pathways of Islam. It's all external, simple. Just do the seven sacraments of a Catholic. It's all external. It's religion. It's easy to do. But if you realize God is going to condemn me, now you're going to hunt for a Savior and one that's going to do the job right. Jesus died on the cross for sins. Nobody else. Jesus rose from the dead to beat death. Nobody else. There's only one Savior, the Savior of the world, Christ Jesus, 1 John chapter 4. None of those external man's religions go deep enough. Man's religion never convicts the human being. You don't need to change some things about your life. Your entire life is wrong. Any view of God, a God, that does not see him as high and holy and angry with sin is a false God and a false gospel. Please don't be swept up in the spirit of the age. It's viewed now 
as you're so unloving and you're so wrong to tell people they're bad and they need to convert. You know, in some ways, political correctness is not an act of love. It's an attack upon truth. When you speak truth and you're told you're not allowed to say that, there's something wrong with the people making the rules. I'll go a step further. Without truth, there is no love. Love disappears. It's gone. Trying to fix something that is broken is noble. Being a surgeon to heal a person in need is a good work. Converting people to get them saved is the best work you can do. Are you doing that work? Are you out there trying to convert other people? They cannot avoid the pain of conviction. They cannot make it into the kingdom of God until they realize, I'm doomed without Christ. And you must not spare them the pain. Peter knew this pain. Jesus did a miracle early on in the ministry, and he's coming to Peter, and Peter said, go away from me, Lord. Why? I'm a sinful man. He knew it. It was uncomfortable to be around the holy presence of Christ. Paul understood it. Paul was on the road to Damascus to put Christians in jail. He realized, I have been persecuting the Messiah's church. Later in 1 Timothy, he said, of all the sinners on planet earth, I am the chief sinner. He was not exaggerating. He believed that his sin in trying to stamp out the church in its infancy was the worst thing that could be done. The Bible says, all have sinned. The Bible is a hard book to interpret. We don't really know what it means. We all can just interpret it any way we want. All have sinned. It's just really difficult to understand the Bible, what it means. We all have our own interpretations. It's difficult. There's so many denominations. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Check out the context, Romans 3. It means all. So when you are out there, tell them the truth, even if it hurts, especially if it hurts. Tell them the whole truth. Don't hold back. When you start to feel, see them feeling bad, tell them more. It's better to spend more time making them feel bad so their conversion is genuine. I just wanted you to see that. The mighty power of the word and the conviction of sin are the first two important components of conversion. We're only going to be able to stop, start the third one today. And the third component is this. Write it down if you're taking notes. Genuine repentance. There must be genuine repentance. We've only got to verse 38, I realize. But it's important, okay? Verse 38, the beginning. So they've asked him, what can we do? You might have thought Peter might have said nothing. Thank God there's something here. What is the something? Peter said to them, the ones asking this question, the ones convicted of sin. There's got to be a conviction of sin. And so Peter says it to them, and he says, repent. You ever see how Satan likes to make fun in this world also of people that would stand on the street corner and say what? little sign going up and down. Repent. He's got a long beard. Looks like he's a wacko. So you don't want to be like him, so don't ever use the word repent as sort of the way it comes to you. Do you see? You need to recover that word. It's a good word. basically means to turn, turn back to God. And you can say that if you don't, you don't think people understand repent. You can say you need to turn back to God. You need to come back to God, you see. 
once they have heard, once they have been deeply convicted, then God says, do not stop merely with your sorrow. Oh, I feel so bad. We killed the Messiah. Not good enough. There's no conversion there yet. That's only the beginning of conversion. That's only the first little part. I feel really bad about my sin. I feel like I've wasted my life. I feel like I've done wrong. I feel like I'm understanding now that the way I lived is not acceptable to God. The, the moral standards are so much higher. My mouth has been filthy. I, I've, I've, had, I've been involved in sexual sin, and, and I don't even want to talk about what I've thought about in my mind. And you get to that point, you're not yet converted. You're just sorrowful. You're just sad. A lot of people going to hell will be sorrowful and sad. They're not going to be drinking Bud Light, going to hell, dilly-dilly, let's have a good time. They're not even going to have a friend in hell. Don't stop with mere sorrow. Don't just let it in. Oh, they feel bad. That's not good enough. Now you've got to tell them what to do. Repent. Turn back. Listen, repentance is required by God. If you don't tell them they must repent, you haven't given them the proper response to the good news. Repentance is a clear biblical doctrine. Oh, I've got so much here. I'll have to cut this off somewhere, but I've got to give you something. Acts chapter 26, write this passage down. Acts 26, 19 through 20. The apostle Paul this time is... Uh, presenting these words in defense of his apostolic preaching ministry. He's talking to a king. He was told he would have to give the gospel to kings, and here's one he's giving to. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, verse 20, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that... They should, here it is again, Paul and Peter saying the same thing, they should repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God are just two ways of saying the same thing. And then it has this little ING clause, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. The deeds that come after repentance are not the repentance, but they're the necessary sign that repentance has happened. If repentance, repentance literally means a change of mind. It comes from a Greek term, metanoia. Meta, it's kind of a compound word. Meta means after, and noia is the mind. And so it means a thought after or a change of mind. In other words, after it happened, you change your mind. You had an afterthought. And now you're completely reversing yourself. If someone was walking that direction and they decided, I'm going the wrong direction, they turn and come back this direction, it'd be a U-turn, we'd call it. That would be repentance. They're changing their direction entirely. It's not a slight slight change to their direction. It's a complete U-turn. They're going away from God. They're living life for themselves. They're involved in a false religion with a false God. They've had bad theology. Now they realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm convicted. It's not a slight little change. It's a complete, oh, wow, I got to go back and I got to admit I was wrong. That's exactly right. It's the hardest pathway possible to retrace the steps and say, I did wrong. Now, the the fruit of repentance, the deeds of repentance are necessary to prove the change of mind has happened. Imagine someone sitting around and saying, I changed my mind, but they don't change what they did, right? It's like, well, did you really change your mind or not? There are a lot of people in church, they say they changed their mind, but they don't look like they changed their mind. They look like they're still living for the world. 
They're still living for money. They're still living for sex, for a good time, for fun. My God, I worship the God. He has a very fancy name. I worship the God. Before I worship Christ, I worshiped another God, and his name was Fun. F-U-N, fun. I thought he was fun. I chased fun all I could get. Any and every form of fun. God said, you got to live for me, and sometimes, a lot of times, it's not going to be fun. And we're going to test how much you love me or not. That's what you have to do. You have to repent. I'm no longer going to live for this. Now I'm going to live for Christ, you see. Paul said repentance is a necessary part of the ongoing gospel proclamation. By the way, some said the repentance was only said to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. Acts 26 makes it very clear that repentance was for the Gentiles also. The Liberty New Testament commentary makes this note. There can be no doubt that repentance was an essential ingredient to salvation and was a vital part of Paul's apostolic preaching, end quote. If you are not preaching repentance, you are not preaching the proper response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll give you another quote from Peter in Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Peter's preaching again. He says, Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What is repentance? Repentance involves returning to God. Some are straying away, and the call of repentance is quit straying, quit living the way you want to, and come back. In fact, I'll take it a step further and say that repentance is a prominent and necessary biblical doctrine. The very first word John the Baptist preached out in the wilderness, the very first word that Jesus enjoined in his public preaching ministry was, you guessed it, the word what? Repent. Matthew 3, 1 to 3, now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent, turn back, see, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Repentance makes your heart straight. It makes the pathway straight back to God. Richard Owen Roberts, in his book entitled Repentance, the First Word of the Gospel, writes this, Not only is the word repent the dominant note in John the Baptist's message, But he made the concept of repentance absolutely clear. Repentance makes the paths straight between the Lord and the repenting person. Repentance is like clearing a highway of holiness to God, to and from God. Jesus proclaimed repentance, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, and here's his first word, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got to turn back and come in. You've got to turn back and come in. At one time, Jesus sternly warned a group of Jews. They'd, seen a, they'd heard of a, a tower falling on some Jews, and the, this, this concrete or whatever it was made out of, the stone tower fell, and it crushed a bunch of Jews. And then people start speculating, why did those Jews get crushed by that tower? Maybe they did some kind of a sin. That must be it. The tower fell on them and not on others because they had some sin and they got caught. And they came and asked Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher, what do you think about that? And his answer was... No, 
It's not because of that. I tell you, unless you repent, he was talking to the crowd, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, if not by dying by a tower with something else, and it will lead to your destruction. We do that in America, do we not? We watch a natural disaster on TV, and we say, oh, those poor people living in that God-forsaken country. I'm so glad I'm here in America. Well, listen again to Jesus' words, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is even part of the commission that Jesus gave to the church right after his resurrection. In Luke 24, 46, it says, Thus it is written that the Christ... These are Jesus' words. It is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Again, one more quote from Richard Owen Roberts' book. He says, Not only was repentance the first word of Christ's ministry, it was also the last. Anyone called by God as a follower of Jesus Christ who fails to stress this message of repentance does so in express violation of a final command Christ gave. You cannot preach any other gospel than the one of repentance. Hear that loud and hear that clear. And we'll get into more of the meaning of repentance and whether or not you have repented, what repentance looks like in our heart, the fruit of repentance, even biblical examples of repentance when we come back, God willing, next Lord's Day. Now I'm about to pray and you remember the instructions. Some of you are going to help and you're going to stay. Others of you were not planning on helping. That's okay, we forgive you. You can repent and turn and come back if you want to as you're going down there. But if you're a visitor, go for the donuts and everything because, you know, that's there for you and enjoy that in the foyer. Father in heaven, thank you for this congregation. Please help us to be exhorted and sharpened uh, and gain discernment by this teaching on biblical conversion. And we would pray anyone in here who's not yet repented, and we know even in The country of Russia, they don't even refer to believers as believers, but as repenters. Anyone who's not repented of their life of sin, you would convict them because they've heard your word and draw them to yourself. Amen.